It's the first Sunday of Advent today, and so I'm going to be talking a little bit about Christmas. I'm wearing a Christmas jumper, but I was sweating, so I had to take it off, so now I'm just sweating. Um, but, uh, uh, and we've had, we've had Advent calendars. Anyone else got an Advent calendar in the house today? A few of us. Uh, my boys have been looking at them, because they've got chocolate. They were given by their Uncle Mike, uh, and so, of course, they're full of chocolate, and they've been waiting for a whole week to sort of tuck into this. So, big morning this morning when finally they're allowed to eat one. Uh, and... Uh, Anyway, so we are going to be talking about that, but, but also I want to really follow on from last week's talk. Mike was here last week. Don't worry if you, if you weren't here. You don't need to have been here um, for, to understand what I'm saying this morning. But if you weren't here and you want to go back and listen to it, I'd really recommend it. Mike was actually talking about um, a, a psalm, Psalm 88, which is one of only two psalms in the whole book of psalms. There's 150 of them that is totally depressing. But the talk is not as depressing as that sounds, make it sound. Um, uh, but in this psalm, the, the guy that wrote it is a guy called Heman, and he is really just going through it. And the final verse of the psalm says, uh, you have taken from me friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend. That's the, that's the final line. Mike referenced a band I'd never heard of called Simon and Garfunkel, who apparently had a song. I've gone and since listened to them, uh, and I can tell you I have less faith than he does for the Simon and Garfunkel revival. Um, but uh, they've got a song saying, Hello, darkness, my old friend. That's exactly how it sounds. Um, but in this psalm, the, the, Mike was saying, Why is there a piece of scripture where there's so much, it's just so dark? And he, 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 I found it really helpful to hear, first of all, because the Bible's real. It gives us permission. You know, sometimes we feel as Christians we have to jump around and pretend everything's great all the time. And actually it gives us permission to, to acknowledge life is hard. And it can be hard for me right now. And Jesus, um, in more than one place, tells us that we should expect there to be trouble, um, even as we seek to follow him. The Bible gives us permission to be real about that. We can be honest. Also, what he was saying is God's grace is big enough for that honesty. Um, it's okay for us to kick and scream and rage. He's not going to walk away. He's, he, you know, he's okay to absorb that. He loves us to be real with him. His grace is big enough. Also, what he was saying is often it's in those darkest places that God is most able to work in our hearts and in our lives. We become at that point of honesty and at that point sometimes of seeming helplessness where it feels like it's dark circumstances outside of us and, and dark stuff inside of us as well. At that point, often we're, we're, we're able uh, for God to meet us and to begin to bring change. And actually, Heman, the guy that wrote the psalm, we see from elsewhere in Scripture did not stay as much as it would have felt to him in the moment, all-encompassing, he did not stay in the darkness, but eventually he came out of the other side of it. And where Mike finished was by talking about how Jesus um, ultimately comes into the world and he takes that darkness upon himself. And so the best picture of that is the picture of him giving his life upon the cross. And literally, in that moment, the world becomes dark. And uh, the sun is as if it's blotted out. And he enters into the darkness in order to destroy it, that we don't have to stay there. And it's on that final kind of note of Jesus entering into darkness that I want to begin this morning by talking about what we look forward to at Christmas. Because what we are celebrating when we celebrate Christmas, is exactly that, that Jesus Christ enters into the darkness of our world. One of the, the first signs of Christmas, we put ours up yesterday, is lights. I don't know if you've got any out. I don't know if you've managed to get a tree yet or anything. But uh, lights symbolize Christmas, and that's really biblical. So there's loads of pictures in the Bible of, uh, of light. And uh, one of the people that uses an image like this is a prophet, the prophet Isaiah. 
And this is a passage that I don't look at that much, but it always comes around every single Christmas. And so I went back to look at it as I was thinking about what to share this morning. One of the things I'd never seen before is that the the passage I'm about to read um, is actually set in the context of real deep darkness. And so Isaiah is is hanging around in Israel at a time where things were pretty bleak, and he articulates that. So he talks about the people he can see around him and how they are struggling uh, with life and how things have gone wrong. He talks about how they've become enraged and angry, about how they're cursing their leaders, how they're cursing God himself. And this is actually what he says, Isaiah 8 verse 22, describing the situation he's in. Then they will look towards the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. That speaks of an agony of society, but also an agony of the soul. And then uh, he goes on to prophesy. And just like we might look at something on the horizon, you know, like a car on its way towards us and say, hey, that's coming. I can see it coming. So the prophets, what they were able to do is they were able to look down the centuries and see stuff that God was doing and, and, and tell us about it. Say, hey, I see this is coming. And that's what Isaiah does. So this is, uh, this is a passage that's often read this time of the year. Here it is. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Isaiah said those words centuries before Jesus was born. Um, but, but what he's describing there speaks to what happens when God arrives in the world. And that first little image, I love it. On those living in the land of darkness, a light has dawned. The light has dawned. Um, Another way of putting it in the Hebrew is the light has suddenly flashed upon us. And why that is such a powerful image is because it captures for us what we believe as Christians is the message of salvation, which is it's something that God has worked on our behalf. It doesn't say those living in the land of darkness found a light switch. It doesn't say those living in the land of darkness kind of invented a light bulb or created a torch and so they were able to artificially kind of, kind of illuminate the darkness. What it says is they were walking in deep darkness, not just shallow darkness, whatever that looks like, real deep pitch black darkness, bottomless despair, agony, depression, addiction, no way out. They're living at the bottom of it all and then suddenly upon them a great light comes. Suddenly upon them something dawns. It's not something they work out. It's something that happens to them. Like the sun comes up every morning. I can flick the lights on in my house but there's no switch for a sunrise. The sun comes up and we simply receive it. And in the same way what what Isaiah is saying is that there is a salvation that is coming that is nothing to do with what we do or don't do but is simply something that God is going to work. He's going to move in power. And that's, that's, that's a huge part of understanding the gospel. God does it. We receive it. We say yes to it. But he enacts it. I remember reading this, uh, this guy who's a pastor of a church. And he was talking about how he went to visit some of the churches in his local area. 
And it was a really deprived area, and there was a lot of, uh, a lot of problems. And he knocks on the door of this one lady who welcomed him in, and, and they sat down, and he started to share with her the message of Jesus. And he just put it really simply. He said, um, God loves you, and uh, he wants to know you. He wants to have a relationship with you. In order to make that possible, he's come himself as Jesus, and he died on a cross. And what that means is that everything we've ever done, we can be forgiven for if we say yes to him. And then we start a relationship of love with him. And this woman was just blown away. You know, normally when we tell, tell that story to people, we're expecting to be dismissed or whatever. But she just took it. She was like, oh, my, I will take that. And she started rejoicing. She gave her life to Jesus. And he said he came back a week later. She opened the door. She saw it was him and she started to cry. And the reason was, uh, you know, when he was sitting down, she started to say, well, listen, I I was just, my soul felt so different and I I couldn't believe it. And I rang my sister to tell her what had happened, to tell her how I'd become a relationship with Jesus. And I told her what you told me about how if I say yes to him, he forgives me. And then I start a relationship of love. And she laughed at me. And she just said to me, are you seriously telling me that you can just, you, having lived the life that you have lived, you can just five minutes before you die, just decide suddenly I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say sorry. You know, I'm going to repent. And then you can just get off scot-free. You can, you can get, out, get out of jail free card. She says, it's too simple and it's too easy. And so she laughed at her. And of course, what that did for this woman is it threw her off. She's like, well, maybe that's not the truth. And the, the pastor who went to see her said, no, I need to tell you that it is. That is the message of Christianity. We say yes, we turn around, we say sorry, absolutely. But he comes for us. The light has dawned. It's his work. We receive it. It's a gift to us. And I don't have a sister ringing me up laughing at me, telling me that's a joke. Do you know who tells me that? Me. So often this little voice in my head says, can't be that easy. Can't be that simple. No such thing as a free lunch. You have to earn this, Andy. You have to deserve it. You have to work for it. And so day after day after day, I find myself in need of coming back to the simple message of God's mercy and his kindness and his grace, which is, I was lost, and then you came and found me. I was blind, and then you made me see. I was living in darkness, and a light dawned upon me, and then I get to receive it. And then Isaiah goes on, because the, the light, I love this, right? He describes this great, powerful picture of a light suddenly dawning. But then he explains how the light dawns. And it's not like a sun kind of comes up over the horizon, something distant from us. But instead, this is how the light dawns. Not distant from us, but among us and in our midst. Because he goes on to say, verse 7, For unto us a child is born, and to us... A son is given. John says exactly the same thing when he's writing his gospel. He just says it in a different way. So John chapter 1 verse 9 says, The true light, that's Jesus, that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. This is how the light comes. Birth. I have uh, got four kids, as many of you know, four sons. Um, and uh, they've all come along in the last five years. So uh, although I've never actually given birth, I feel like I've had a fairly close encounter with it for, uh, on more than one occasion. And I've got some stories to tell. I kind of wish I was 
featured in One Born Every Minute. Beth would find that horrifying, but I think it might be quite interesting. Um, and uh, before our first Josiah was born, I was asking all these people for advice, all the men, you know, who'd been in this situation before. What do I need to be doing? Uh, how, how, do I, how do I best prepare? And I'll tell you, the main piece of advice that I was given, take some snacks with you. Um, and... Uh, that was partly, I think, because a lot of the people, a lot of the, uh, our friends of ours, the couples that had had labors, they'd gone on forever. I mean, they, these have been labors that had gone on for days, literally like four days, some of them, since start to finish. And so I took, I went to all these NCT classes and birthing classes, and I made notes and stuff like that. But to be honest, the one piece of advice I took to heart was bring some snacks. So I, I, I remember going out to, to prepare, and I just thought, I'm just going to buy everything I like. I'm going to buy some Lucozade, keep myself hydrated. I'm going to buy some Pringles. These are snacks for me not for Beth, right? So I packed my little bag and, uh, and then just Beth goes into labor early, a week early, which I wasn't, I was, none of us were expecting, but suddenly it was like, it's okay, I'm prepared. I'll get my bag of snacks. And uh, we got in the car and I still remember really vividly the drive to the hospital because every bump we went over, Beth screamed at me. And, uh, and then we finally got to the hospital and, and I pull out outside the maternity unit. Beth goes in. Um, I have to rush to park the car somewhere. So I, I, you know, so I rush off to park the car. But I'm thinking in my head, we're going to be, this is it for the long haul. You know, we're going to be here for four or five days now before this baby turns up. So um, I park the car at the Watford General Car Park and then um, I couldn't carry everything that we had in the boot up to the maternity unit in one go and I thought this baby's not arriving for ages I've got a choice of bags here to take I'm going to take the snacks so I took my snacks and I and I went up to the hospital I remember running texting people as I'm going like there she's in labor you know texting Mike she's in labor she's in labor and so I arrive at the hospital um, rush into where Beth is in the Midwest very calm and blah 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 and then she examines Beth and she's like oh my word you know, it's happening. 20 minutes later, Josiah was born. And uh, I remember it because there was a point where the midwife turned to me and said, do you have any clothes for this baby? And I said, I have a box of Pringles for him, (laughs) but I'm afraid I left the clothes in the car. Um, And I've been through that a number of times, learning lessons along the way. But one of the things about being there in that room, and I know it's not happening to me, but like you, you just... It's hard to find the language, but you just, it's so vivid. It, it's, it's, it's like all the dull parts of life fall away and you're there in that moment just watching life in action. You feel you're so alive, so raw, so real, so human. And the way, this is crazy, but the way the light dawns is that. He's born. And he comes into the world the way that all babies do. And there's, and there's the blood and there's the mess and there's the, 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 the cries of pain. And then that first cry as, he, as the baby sucks in air into its lungs and lets it out. And, you know, and, and then you see there he is, the ancient of days on day one of his life. And uh, John wants us to get this. And he wants us to understand, I, I would suggest about what's happening here, that God is saving us, but not by flicking a lamp on in heaven and shining light down from a distance. He's saving us by coming so close to us that he becomes one of us. That, that there's an intimacy here. And so John, who wrote the gospel and was Jesus' disciple, also wrote uh, a few letters and listen to what he says. This is 1 John 
chapter 1, verse 1. I'm going to read it from the message. Um, listen to the way that he's describing it, the physicality of it, the closeness of it, what he's talking about when he's talking about Jesus. He says, From the very first day we were there, taking it all in. We heard it with our own ears, saw it with our own eyes, verified it with our own hands. The word of life appeared right before our eyes. We saw it happen. And now we're telling you in most sober prose that what we witnessed was incredibly this. The infinite life of God himself took shape before us. We saw it. We heard it. And now we're telling you so that you can experience it along with us. This experience of communion with the Father and of his Son, Jesus Christ. Our motive for writing is simply this. We want you to enjoy this too. Your joy will double our joy. I love that. We felt him. We saw him. We we heard him. And now we're telling you about him. Because what's happened is he's come near. That's what, we're, that's what we're celebrating at Christmas. But almost another way of putting it is that's what we're absolutely dumbstruck by at Christmas. This is what's happened. And for me, in the last sort of term or so, I don't, I don't, I'm sure you found the same thing. Life is so hectic and it's so busy and it's so, there's so much going on. It feels like it's relentless pace all the time. Uh, one of the things I, I'm hoping for this Christmas is because I know only the pace only increases as we get towards it, is that the, this truth of this astonishing God that we know and love would become more real to me and that it would be the the thing that I'm dwelling on that I'm building my hope upon as a foundation and one of the things that can help is to constantly reorientate ourselves back towards the light back towards who he is I remember seeing uh, this David Attenborough program Blue Planet like Blue Planet 2 I think it was a couple of years ago but there's this scene in there that has really haunted me because he's got a way of telling the stories so that these animals become like little people and it's all happening to them. You know how he does that? And uh, there's this moment where you see these turtles hatch on a beach. You'll know it. You'll remember it if you saw it. These turtles are hatching on a little beach and it's night. And they have an instinct, the turtles, to go towards the light. And the theory is that um, the, the brightest light in the sky is the moon and it shines on the surface of the waters of the sea so the turtles instinctively see that light and they head towards it and they obviously end up in the water which is where they're meant to go but what's happened in years since is of course cities have been invented and urban sprawls happened and we pollute the world with light and so what's happening is they film these little turtles hatching and instead of instinctively heading off towards the water where the moon is shining there's all these brilliant bright lights that are coming to them from the buildings and so that they get confused and they get disorientated and they think that's the the way they should go and so they all start heading off in that direction and then it's tragic because the, the film crew show them as they're falling into drains and they're ending up on roads and these cars are whizzing past them and some of them end up getting killed by the cars and uh, and and it's just a reflection on pollution and what it can do to these little guys and I thought as I was watching that gosh isn't that a brilliant picture of how often we can be and the way the world is now that we're created with this instinct, this inbuilt longing for God, this inbuilt longing for unconditional love, which is what is promised to us. It's our destiny. But then what happens is there's so many bright lights. There's so much noise. There's so many competing truth claims. There's so much distraction going on that what happens is often that stuff blinds us to where the light really is and it becomes the place that we pursue meaning. It comes the place we try and find our fulfillment or we try and find 
find our purpose in, in whatever stuff and it turns to ashes in our hands and to dust in our mouths and we realise we've been going in the wrong direction all along. As a Christmas and Advent and the birth and the arrival of our Saviour, it's an opportunity for us to reorientate ourselves back to the one who is the great light that gets born into the shadows. And what can help us with this really practically is, is to speak to ourselves again the truth of who he is. And Isaiah does it for us. Because when we talk about, well, how does the light arrive? He's born. Well, well who does he reveal himself to be? We've got a list of names here. I love these names. And what we can do is we can take them like little sweets and chew on them throughout the day. Here's the first one. He's the wonderful counsellor. This is who is arriving. He's the wonderful counsellor. I don't know what makes a counsellor wonderful. I've had counselling. Some of it's good, some of it's not so good. Some of them are good and some of them are not so good. But I know what, one of the things that means a lot to me is when I'm sharing with a friend and they've been through something similar. Maybe it's not exactly the same situation, but they've been through pain or suffering that's kind of similar. That means that they get it when I say this is what I'm going through. They understand. They don't try and dismiss it. They don't try and give me a pat answer or a quick fix. But they've been there and so they know and they can nod their heads and say, yeah, yeah, I get that. I get that. One of the things about God and about Jesus that makes him a wonderful counsellor is just that. That, that he has come into the darkness. That he's, God knows what it feels like to be human from the inside. There's no other religion that goes close to making a claim like that. He understands what it is to be poor. He understands what it is to be oppressed, to be opposed, to be fearful. He knows what it is to have difficult family situations. He understands what it is to be misrepresented. He's been there when he's been misunderstood. He's been betrayed. He's been humiliated. He's experienced death itself. And so he can say, I know. I understand. I get where you are coming from. Uh, One of my favorite series ever is the West Wing. And if you've not got a Christmas list uh, yet and you haven't received the West Wing, you should definitely get it. But um, there's a scene from the West Wing that I love, which is where the deputy chief of staff, who's a guy called Josh Lyman, who's kind of this hard-nosed political operative, um, suddenly finds himself really struggling with his mental health. And, um, and it gets recognised by some of his colleagues and they kind of strong-arm him into seeing this counsellor. And this guy and Josh are sitting in a room together and they, um, they, they, Josh spends the first sort of couple of hours just being a bit of a smart ass and not really answering his questions. And eventually this guy wears him down to the point where Josh starts to become vulnerable and raw and it becomes clear that, you know what, he, he's struggling and, and the guy says, you've got um, post-traumatic stress disorder. And then Josh becomes really terrified because he thinks, well, that doesn't sound like something they let you have when you work for the President of the United States. Anyway, they finish the counselling session. It's gone on for a whole day and Josh is just leaving the building when Leo McGarry, who is his boss, who is the chief of staff, is uh, kind of sitting in the lobby and he stands up when Josh walks in. And Josh is shocked that he's been waiting there this whole time. He says, you're still here? Leo, by the way, is a recovering alcoholic and drug addict. And uh, Josh says to him, he admits it, I've got this issue. And he just looks despairing. And then Leo, as happens in these kind of programs, launches into a story. And he says, this guy's walking down the street when he falls into a hole. And a doctor walks past. And the guy yells up, hey, you, can you help me out? The doctor writes out a prescription 
throws it down, carries on walking. Next, a priest walks past. The guy from the hole shouts out, hey, Father, I'm down here. Can you help me out? The priest writes out a prayer, throws it down the hole, carries on walking. Then a friend walks past. And the guy in the hole says, hey, Joe, it's me. Can you help me out? The friend jumps down into the really deep hole with him. And our guy in the hole says, what are you doing, you idiot? Now we're both stuck down here. And then the friend says, yes, but I've been here before. And I know the way out. And then Leo says, as long as I got a job, you got a job. I love the story because, again, to me, it paints a picture of the God that we follow. We're stuck in our hole. We're stuck in our despair and in our darkness and in our shame. And he doesn't write out a prescription and throw it down. Here's an instruction. Follow it. You might find some hope. Now, what he does is he climbs down into the hole and he says, hey, I get it because I've been here too. And listen, I know the way out. He's a wonderful counselor because he gets us. He's a mighty father. I'm just going to say some of these other ones quicker. He's a mighty father. Uh, Sorry, he's a mighty God is what it says. Wonderful counselor, mighty God. What I love about that is that Jesus is both human and God. So he's human and that means he understands our pain. He gets it. But he's God, so he's powerful to change it. He's powerful enough to bring salvation. And um, I was trying to think, what's the best picture of that that we could find in the Bible? And of course, the best picture of it is what happens on the cross. And then afterwards, it's not simply that, that our God enters darkness on a hill. It's that then the next thing that happens is he enters the darkness of the tomb. When it's not just that there's no light, but there's no life itself. He enters despair so deep, it's literally death. And then he kicks a hole out the other side of the grave three days later and bursts out into eternal life. And what that says to us, what it says to me is when when I think about the fact, when I remind myself of the fact that I live believing in a God of the resurrection is that hope never has to die, even in the face of death. It certainly doesn't have to die in the face of seemingly impossible situations that we face in our finances or we face in relationships or we face in trying to find a purpose for ourselves in this world. However despairing it might seem, we believe in a God who is mighty to save and strong to do so. He's a mighty God. He's the everlasting Father. I love that. I love that name. That's a name I could take and just chew on for a little while. The Everlasting Father. Um, Because I'm a dad, I've been reading all these books about how to be a better one. Uh, I've already made, I'm only like four years in and I've already made a number of mistakes. And so I'm trying to minimize the future mistakes that I'll make. And this book I've been reading has been brilliant. It's just a tiny thin one. It's called 60 Minute Father because the idea is you read it in 60 minutes by Rob Parsons. And uh, one of the stories he tells in this He's trying to communicate how precious those childhood years are in the early days. So he tells a story about his son. And he says, every morning when I was having a shave, my little boy would come in and he would get me to make up a story for him. So he'd be there shaving and he'd have to make up a story. He had a little character that they talked about every single morning. And he said he did that every morning for years until one morning he didn't. One morning the boy just didn't turn up. 
And he said, he didn't send me an email kind of a couple of days before, just to let you know, you're down to your final two stories, so make them a good one. I won't be coming back after that. There was no warning. There was no heads up. It's just suddenly one day he just didn't turn up. And he said that door of his childhood closed on that particular day forever. And he was saying the door of childhood closes fast and it closes finally. And so don't miss a single day of it that you don't have to absolutely miss. Be there as much as you can. And uh, people ask me now that we've got all these kids and like, you know, we're all so young, how is it? How is it? And the truth is I'm knackered and it's utterly relentless. And, you know, I've never been more sleep deprived in my entire life. And at the same time, boy, is it joyful. And I'm loving it. I'm trying to savor it because I know, like everyone tells me, it goes so quick. I'm trying to get all the juice out of it that I possibly can. Um, and, uh, and there'll come a time when instead of me coming home and Judah begging me to play Lego with him, I will be ringing him up and begging him to come and play Lego with me. It's going to switch at some point. And that's sometimes how we think of relationship with our parents is that there comes these moments where we mature and we become independent and we leave. And, and just so, that's right. But in our relationship with our father, he's the everlasting father. And we're the everlasting children. And so that doesn't mean we don't change and mature. I think we mature in our relationship with him. I think our friendship with him matures as we grow. But here's what doesn't change. We never become less dependent. There's never a moment where we're like, do you know what, dad, I've got this. I can take this one from here. It's always going to be, he's the dad who looks after us. It's always going to be that. And we never get beyond it and we never have to. You're my father, always. Prince of Peace. Final name, Prince of Peace. Another way of putting it is uh, the Lord of Wholeness. He brings wholeness to us. And uh, this is tied up in the, in the text with the fact that the government rests on his shoulders. Isn't that a relief? <laughs> Especially given who we're going to be voting for. In, you know, that's not a political statement for any party, but just it's a bit depressing, isn't it? And, and yet we know the government ultimately rests on his shoulders. He's ultimately in charge. Sovereign authority for my life and yours and, and, and this world rests with him. It's not about what we do and our zeal, but the zeal of the Lord Almighty, it says, will accomplish this. This means this, that we are on a journey, however dark and depressing and despairing it feels like at times, and it does feel so bad at moments, um, towards wholeness and towards peace. And just as Isaiah looked ahead to the arrival of Jesus, so John, who we've quoted numerous times, looks ahead to the return of Jesus. And he talks in the book of Revelation about a time where there'll be no more mourning or crying or tears or pain because the old order of things will have passed away and behold, all things will be made new. And so um, one of the things this gives me this Christmas as I look at who has been given to us and who we enjoy. And I meditate on the fact that he is, gosh, all of these things, is it gives me, even in the midst of some of my dark days, and I have them, hope.